Good morning. Adam Schiff is censured. An admiral gets a promotion, but a qualified woman is passed over. Did the next chief of naval operations preside over the poisoning of his troops? Native rights get a boost at the Supreme Court. Will it last? Fusion centers in the attack on peaceful protest. And the late Daniel Ellsberg speaks on espionage and Julian Assange. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for the week of June 24th, 2023. On Wednesday, the House of Representatives voted 213 to 209 to censure Democratic Representative Adam Schiff. The vote was entirely along party lines. The resolution claims Schiff lied to the public during congressional investigations into former President Donald Trump's ties to Russia. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. On this vote, the A's are 213 and the nays are 209. With six answering present, the resolution adopted. Without objection, the motion to consider is laid on the table. House will be in order. Will Representative Schiff present himself in the well? By its adoption of House Resolution 521, the House has resolved that the House of... I have all night. By its adoption of House Resolution 521, the House has resolved that the House of Representatives censures Adam Schiff, representative of the 30th Congressional District of California. for misleading the American public and for, and for conduct unbecoming of an elected member of the House of Representatives, that Representative Adam Schiff will be forthwith present himself in the well of the House of Representatives for the pronouncement of censure. That Representative Adam Schiff will be censured with the public reading of this resolution by the Speaker and that the Committee on Ethics shall conduct an investigation into Representative Adam Schiff's falsehoods, misrepresentations, and abuse of sensitive information. GOP Representative Anna Paulina Luna of Florida spearheaded the censure motion, claiming Schiff had exploited his position as chair of the Intelligence Committee to undermine former President Donald Trump, who she calls our duly elected president. Schiff responded, saying the motion was vindication. Public and colleagues who introduced this resolution, I thank you. You honor me with your enmity. You flatter me with this falsehood. You who are the authors of a big lie about the last election must condemn the truth tellers and I stand proudly before you. Donald Trump is under indictment for actions that jeopardize our national security and McCarthy would spend the nation's time on petty political payback, thinking he can censure or fine Trump's opposition into submission. But I will not yield, not one inch. If a transient majority can punish and attempt to silence members who hold a corrupt president to account, there is no telling what further corruption of office will follow. And I say this to Speaker McCarthy and others who wish to gratify Donald Trump with this act of subservience or bend to his demands. Try as you might to expel me from Congress or silence me with a $16 million fine, you will not succeed. You might as well make it 160 million. You will never deter me from doing my duty. 
Representative Adam Schiff. An earlier attempt to censure Schiff would have imposed a $16 million fine on the representative. Schiff was lead manager in Trump's first impeachment trial and a frequent target of Trump's anger. The last vote to censure was in 2021. Democrats censured Arizona GOP Representative Paul Gozar for posting a video depicting the killing of Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. And New York is hosting its annual Pride March and Rally this weekend. As revelers get ready to party and strut down Fifth Avenue, politicians gathered Tuesday at the corner of the avenue and Washington Square Park to rename the corner after LGBTQ marriage pioneers Edie Windsor and Thea Spire. Windsor, who had married Spire in Canada, was hit by a $300,000 tax bill on an inheritance from Spire. In the face of opposition in the gay and lesbian community, Windsor sued. The case made it to the Supreme Court in 2013, and the decision legalized same-sex marriage once and for all. On Tuesday, Governor Kathy Hochul spoke at the unveiling of the new street honoring the couple. Well, it took a long time, my friends. Way too long, I think, about my Uncle Kevin. What he had to endure when he came home from the Vietnam War after serving short time in the priesthood until he realized his true identity. It was tough for a lot of people for a long time. Really, really hard. But I'm so proud to live at a time where at least in our state, we celebrate. We think about phrases like happy pride. That's not just the month of June. We want pride to be a statement of who we are 365 days a year. We always want to be happy and proud and out. That's who we are as New Yorkers. Sometimes it takes people of courage to stand up against the forces of their time. And that's exactly what Edie did in manifestation of her love to Thea. It's a beautiful story. And she said, I'm going all the way to the Supreme Court. So it's not just about me. It's about all the people who come after me. And today we benefit and bask in the glory of the freedoms that she made possible for us by standing up so courageously. Hochul may have been trying to make up for a snub by LGBTQ activists in her hometown of Buffalo. The governor was disinvited after her budget kept a Cuomo-era policy in play, redirecting some state funds from community health centers. And in more family news, Native American leaders say a United States Supreme Court decision rejecting a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act known as ICWA, has reaffirmed Indian sovereignty. They claim Native people are independent of some state laws because of their status as nations inhabiting the U.S. before Europeans arrived. Conservative groups had backed the plaintiffs in the case, including a white Texas couple that had wanted to adopt the brother of an Indian child they had already adopted. The 7-2 ruling was less about the children, who should have been placed in native foster families anyway, than about how much leverage states could have over tribal governments and autonomy. The speaker of the Navajo Council is Crystalline Curley. She says native people were relieved by the court decision. It was overwhelming with joy and a lot of our prayers were answered. You know, many of our past leadership has fought for this um, in this council chambers and within the capital of the Navajo Nation. So we were very happy that our voices and our prayers were heard by the Supreme Court and being able to um, reflect that our children are always welcome home and that our children are sacred and our children are precious and that we want to being able to provide a safe community here within our tribal communities for them, being able to welcome them into our homes, being able to greet them through our friendship and our kinship and being able to love them and comfort them um, the way that our grandparents and our ancestors passed down to each and every one of us. So it has been a, a momentous uh, week for Indian country and particularly the Navajo Nation. The host of WBAI Radio's Native American program, Resistance Radio, is Mohawk activist John Kane. He has a problem with the Supreme Court decision because sovereignty of Native people is outside the purview of even the nation's highest court. There's always been this fascination that, that white people have had with Native people. And not that they've ever really gave a shit about us, but this idea of adopting Native kids. And there's all different parts of this. There are the people who just, Angelina Jolie, who they want to make a name for themselves by grabbing some impoverished child someplace and then and giving them a good life, kind of, if you believe it all. 
But then there's also people who exploit Native kids. And the history of foster care and adoption has not been about wealthy white people just assimilating Native kids. The abuse has been incredible. The whole truth and reconciliation that Maine went through was over foster care. It wasn't over residential schools. It was over foster care because of the abuse that took place. The irony of ICWA is that this federal law gets attributed with putting an end to residential schools. Congress is the one that created residential schools and the federal government and the interior department. It's incredible to listen to even Native people, Native activists, Native lawyers, just praise how wonderful ICWA was and how it put an end to residential schools. They just had to stop residential schools. They didn't need to pass a special law for it. They just need to stop what they were doing. And the problem that I have on the adoption and the and the foster care front is everybody keeps claiming that ICWA reinforced sovereignty. We aren't the ones who are either removing children from these families, justifiable or otherwise, or placing them. It's still the state government. It's still TPS. All ICWA did was put some guardrails up that says, well, you've got to put a priority on placing Native kids within Native families or Native communities. Why aren't we involved in the process more? I'm not saying that every Native territory has a court system, you know, a family court system, or even maybe perhaps the governing infrastructure. Then you know what? Then that's what you should have created. The law should have been funded to assist Native Child Protective Services so we were no longer being managed by the state or getting caught up into this battle between states' rights and federal rights, because that's what this is all about. Then you got half of this argument that has been reduced down to, well, it's just about race. Kavanaugh literally says if a family that was otherwise qualified and could demonstrate they could serve the best interest of the child, they could still be denied just because of the race. He didn't throw culture, any sovereignty, autonomy, anything. It's just about race. You've got elements on this court that would have loved to have been able to reduce this down to an equal protections clause of the U.S. Constitution and that any preference you gave or any racial requirements were a violation of the Constitution. See, they never even addressed that in this ruling because Amy Coney Barrett was able to throw out some parts of the challenge based on standing, not on the merits. Kavanaugh wrote a separate opinion. Even though he ruled with the seven, not the two, he wrote a separate opinion because he still thinks that this is a racist issue. You can have something at the bottom of a contract or the bottom of a lease that says, we assert that there was no uh, racial discrimination taken in the selling of this house or in this transaction or that transaction, and then it's over and they don't have to do anything. And yet all the other things associated with class are continued. Exactly. Well, and here's the other problem that, the other problem that I have. Even from a native defense of ICWA standpoint, we get placed in a situation where we've got to essentially support this notion that Congress has plenary powers over us. Frankly, I have a problem with that because the whole plenary powers doctrine is based on almost solely on the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. And the Commerce Clause just simply says Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations, among several states, and with Indian tribes. When we talk about commerce, we mean about life in general. So this clearly means that the Founding Fathers had every intention that Congress should have the power over all the affairs, plenary powers, over all the affairs of Indians. Well, they don't have plenary powers over all the foreign nations, and it's the same fucking language. So the problem with the Treaty Clause is that's an executive power. That's not a congressional power. People are saying this stuff, and they're lying or they're wrong. I don't know in any situation where Native people have subjected themselves or submitted themselves to the power of Congress. When I listen to all these Native lawyers and these Native leaders praise that Congress has our back, no, they don't. I mean, they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act to make gaming illegal by creating scenarios that they could make it illegal. The Supreme Court acknowledged that we had the right to do gaming. So then what does Congress do? Oh, we're going to rush through. We're going to create a bunch of barriers and we're going to put the states in bed with all these gaming nations. We're going to let them have a, some role in regulating that gaming. We didn't need that. They did that to harm us, not to help us. This is the problem that I have with all of this rhetoric about plenary powers being vested in Congress to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. That's the Supreme Court saying that. There's nothing in the law that ever suggested that Congress should have the power to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. Mm -hmm. 
there is a problem on many reservations because of the the class problems, because of the years and decades and centuries of, of oppression that have happened to folks, that sometimes there is a need to place a child in a better situation. There's no question about that. And, but let's be clear. The poverty and the social degradation that exists on a Native territory is policy-driven, every bit of it, from the very beginning. The United States trying to say, well, child being raised on a reservation is not a good thing. You're going to use a white standard to remove children from Native households because the very situation that you created in those Native communities is one that has its own challenges. And they do, even in Seneca territory. With the success of gaming and that kind of stuff here, you still have a lot of households living in, in poverty. It is what it is there. But I think the whole idea that the Native governments, and even time, oftentimes even when those Native governments have courts, we don't end up being the final say in where when a child is removed from a home and where a child is placed. And that, to me, is what ICWA should have done. If you were really interested in the, the welfare of children, you would have elevated our sovereignty because we wouldn't have the challenge. It wouldn't be a states' rights issue anymore. The challenge is whether the federal government is overreaching by telling states that normally have control over family matters, is it a government overreach? They're trying to make it a states' rights issue, then they're trying to make it a race issue. They're never making it an issue about the fact that we predate the United States. John Kane is host of WBAI Radio's Native American program, Resistance Radio, heard Thursdays at 3 p.m. at 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. And members of the United States military were shocked this week when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin snubbed the woman, Rear Admiral Lisa Franchetti, who is widely expected to become the first woman chief of naval operations, the Navy's highest-ranking officer. Franchetti is currently in the number two spot. Instead, Austin appointed Admiral Samuel Paparo, who's been commander of the Navy's Pacific Fleet since 2021. If confirmed, he'd bring a hardline attitude towards China. He discussed China in a video address to the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, better known as DARPA. The United States is a Pacific nation. What happens in this region is of utmost importance to the safety and well-being of the American people, our partners, and our allies. The Pacific is vitally and principally important to U.S. deterrence here. In this area of responsibility of Indo-PACOM, U.S. Pacific fleet stretches from the west coast of the United States to the India-Pakistan border, from the Arctic to Antarctica. It is the most consequential area in the world, and we are living in the most consequential times. Paparo is a career naval aviator with extensive experience behind the stick of various fighter aircraft. Franchetti had been commander of U.S. forces in Korea, as well as two carrier strike forces in the Pacific, and served as commander of the Sixth Fleet and NATO strike forces in Europe. Meanwhile, in related news, the U.S. government has been trying to prevent Admiral Paparo from being deposed in a lawsuit brought by more than 400 current and former service members who say the Admiral was negligent in responding to complaints of toxic chemicals leaking from fuel tanks into water wells used by 93,000 military members and their families on the Pearl Harbor base in Hawaii. Army Major Mandy Feint says her family was among those poisoned because of decisions made by Admiral Paparo. Admiral Paparo is the commander of Pacific Fleet. So essentially he is the most senior person in charge of the Red Hill water crisis. Decisions that he made directly impacted 93,000 people being poisoned or being exposed to contaminated drinking water along the Navy's drinking water system. His decision, part of that is failure to warn. We spoke last time about how upsetting that is because I did not get the opportunity to protect my children. The Navy knew, these senior leaders knew, including Admiral Paparo. When they failed to warn us, they took away our job, our full responsibility as parents to protect our children. Had we been warned, had we known about the fuel spill when the Navy leadership did, a lot less people would have gotten sick and a lot less people would live with daily fear about what this exposure has done to our bodies now and in the future. Hearing the news break about Admiral Paparo's nomination to the next Chief of Naval Operations, on no less the 75th anniversary of women 
Veterans Day. It was kind of a kick in the gut just being a female service member myself and knowing that the front runner for that position has been a female this whole time. To find out that information on, on women, she would have been the first CNO. She also would have been the first female to, to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That's kind of a big deal. And so that is all the news, national news is really covering it right now. That's the only controversy that folks are talking about as far as this nomination. But for the people in Hawaii, the impacted families, the 93,000 people poisoned, the community, those civilians, the local Hawaiians there, that is not the biggest point of contention with this nomination. It is the fact that the man, the senior leader for the Navy, the guy that was in charge of this, who we hold responsible, we as parents hold responsible for poisoning our children or for allowing our children to be poisoned, this is the person who has been nominated for the next CNL. Why that cuts so deep and why that feels like such a kick in the gut is that we have said all along we feel like collateral damage in this. This nomination just solidifies that message. It just feels like it doesn't matter. Like this exposure does not matter. It strategically downplays the significance of what's happened to us. Surely the Secretary of Defense would not nominate a this gentleman who was in charge of the crisis if it really was that big of a deal. So it just feels like once again, our exposure, 93,000 people, Americans who were poisoned on American soil by an American military asset, which was owned by the Navy and the most senior person in charge is that Paro. None of that seems to make a difference. Do you feel a little nervous that you're an active duty officer and you're taking on your superior officer? Admiral Paparo is not in my direct chain of command. I feel like I'm speaking out. It is my duty and obligation, not only as a parent, but also as a senior leader myself in the military. We have a right and we have a duty and obligation to speak out about matters of public health and safety. And this certainly falls within that category. There was a settlement of sorts. Weren't they going to empty the tanks that were buried over the aquifer at some point? The Secretary of Defense made a decision about a year ago to shut down Red Hill permanently. However, as well as that brief, it just simply hasn't happened yet. There are several meetings and there's been a joint task force put together who is in charge of defueling. But the defueling process has not started yet. That All of that fuel that was there is still in those tanks. And the concerning part about that is every day that that fuel sits in those tanks continues to compromise the risk of potential continued harm for folks. Yes, there is a plan for Red Hill to be shut down and to be defueled, but it has not happened yet. Do you feel they're really going to do it? The answer in short is that, truthfully, I don't know if it'll happen. I can tell you as a parent in this, we have been told many things from the Navy leadership and from the Department of Defense since the beginning of this crisis that have not been true, have proved not to actually happen or have been true. So I would say with that track record, it's hard to believe at this point. How are you and your family doing? I know you were, you said you were impacted by the fuel oil spill in your water. Yeah, so um, we have we received a compassionate reassignment. We have been out of the exposure for approximately a year now. But my family is not well. We're all still, all four of us, including our children who were one and three years old at the time of the exposure. We've been to approximately 350 medical appointments since the exposure, three major surgeries, nine medical procedures. We're in six to eight medical appointments a week as a family. I'm still serving on active duty, but I have been transitioned to a soldier recovery unit where my sole purpose in life right now, or my sole job is to to get well and to go to my medical appointment. I've been diagnosed with neurotoxicity and have a number of diagnoses and symptoms that I never had before the crisis. And same goes for my husband and our two children. We are doing the best that we can to prioritize our health, whether that is getting our own medical testing when the military has denied us of that and trying to see any specialist or anyone possible who has any sort of background in toxic exposure. Do you think there'll ever be um, uh, accountability? You know, one could only hope, but with the nomination this week, I find it hard to believe. In the military, we are so set on mission first. We always say mission first, people always. But in this crisis, it is seen that it's all about the mission. The people who have been impacted, our greatest asset, our people are our greatest asset. Without them, we wouldn't have a military force. Those people have been treated like collateral damage.
on American soil by an American military asset. Real Americans have been harmed here, and there have been now decisions made this week to nominate the person who was very much responsible and is very much in that chain who made decisions that impacted thousands of lives in Hawaii. Defense officials had denied for years there was anything bad happening with the fuel tanks at the Red Hill facility. Eventually, the state of Hawaii fined the Navy nearly $9 million for discharging pollutants into drinking water. In a tentative consent order reached last year, the Navy says it plans to close the facility. Several environmental groups say they are unhappy with what they call a toothless and potentially dangerous agreement. In more national news, on Wednesday, opponents of a proposed police facility in Atlanta, known officially as the Public Training Center, but popularly as Cop City, began a campaign to get roughly 75,000 signatures on a petition to force a referendum on the facility. The petitioners have about 58 days to complete the process. The effort was announced a day after the city council voted 11-4 to to approve $31 million in public funding for the project. The center would attract police from across the country to participate in the training. It's supported by Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp. Protests have led to violence and bitter recrimination. In January, Georgia State Patrol shot and killed a protester named Manuel Esteban Paez Tehran, better known as Tortuguita, in a hail of bullets during a raid. The circumstances remain murky after an autopsy by the family failed to support the police account. 42 people protesting against Cop City have been arrested and charged with domestic terrorism, some for merely associating with the Defend the Atlanta Forest movement. The terrorism charges are a first for America's progressive protest movement. Lawyers from around the country are jumping to support lawsuits claiming the state has overstepped its authority. Activists lay the blame for the heavy charges on state-run fusion centers, working with the Department of Homeland Security that scraped social media accounts looking for alleged terrorist activity. By using information from private sources to deliver intelligence to local governments. An attorney with the Brennan Center for Justice National Security Program is Spencer Reynolds. He was previously Senior Intelligence Counsel for the Department of Homeland Security working on counterterrorism. These fusion centers and the other agencies you've been talking about have a, a long pattern and practice of targeting environmentalists and other similar activists. So fusion centers are sprawling, unaccountable agencies where Police and intelligence personnel come together from agencies around the country. They're run by states and localities, but you've got FBI, DHS, other federal law enforcement and intelligence working there, too. And they originally started as kind of specific counterterrorism agencies after September 11th, but they've become these really bloated, enormous organizations. They're looking at other crimes, other hazards. There's really a total lack of meaningful oversight and transparency. At fusion centers, people get access to federal intelligence, including from DHS, where they're cranking out reports on a regular basis about people who they call violent extremists that are used to target protesters, like we're seeing in Atlanta. When there were this kind of things happening on the COINTELPRO program, they had to go to Media Pennsylvania and break in and steal the files to find out about COINTELPRO and uh, how vast that was. And we Then we didn't really hear about it for a long time. Is this a, a resurrection of those days, do you think? largely because these centers are unregulated. There's not a lot of transparency, and they have specific domestic missions where they're working with domestic intelligence, like the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis. We see that a lot. They were at kind of the center of the government's response during 2020 civil rights and racial justice protests, where you had agencies like the Department of Homeland Security providing intelligence about social media posts that were taken out of context and used by political actors to kind of paint Antifa and Black Lives Matter protesters as terrorists with the purpose of undermining the broader social movement. And I think we're seeing that playbook deployed again here, especially with the Department of Homeland Security's latest terrorism bulletin, the intelligence that's likely underlying that and has been underlying it for the last many months. What is this terrorist bulletin? After September 11th, DHS started creating regular national terrorism advisory bulletins, releases them on a recurring basis, and they put one out at the end of May that calls activists in Georgia, people who sympathize with them around the country, as domestic violent extremists, which is the DHS euphemism for a terrorist. If they've called you a, what they call a DVE, they've called you a terrorist. They released a bulletin that really brought to light kind of their involvement. But the arrest warrants in Georgia 
coming out since January up through the latest, the bail fund organizers down there were also using that that expression and that terminology. So it's been really entrenched in their approach to the protests down there. Are they really saying that they're terrorists? Because I got the impression from your article that there's they're hedging that. Yeah, they're hedging it a little bit. And I think that's probably because they're trying to avoid another 2020 where they were seen as going after racial justice movements. That's the likely response. They're saying that they don't designate domestic groups as terrorists, but really they're relying on a technicality. The U.S. government designates foreign terrorist organizations. State Department maintains a list of those, and they don't do it for domestic groups here. That doesn't really matter when you've got the Department of Homeland Security circulating intelligence and reporting, calling people domestic violent extremists. The inevitable response, as we've seen time and again, is that fusion centers will receive that information, they'll pass it along to state and local police, and they'll use it for policing decisions. They'll use it for prosecutions, as we're seeing in Georgia. Even if DHS doesn't designate somebody a terrorist, the fact that they're calling them terrorists has a very similar effect. My worst nightmare is they're sitting in a room collecting rumors and then regurgitating them under this federal mandate and making people believe rumors. That certainly is something that happens a fair amount. The Brennan Center released a study on the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis that does in part a look at the intelligence analysis that they release and also the social media surveillance that they do. They have relatively limited collection authorities. They can talk to people, have face-to-face conversations, which they've used to go into jails and interview people without respect for their constitutional rights. It happened in New York a few years ago, didn't it? DHS and FBI have both interacted with people in jails. DHS most recently has been known for doing it kind of like in detention facilities that are run by ICE and CBP and with their state and local partners. Not a lot of details about exactly what those conversations are like have been have been released. They're doing it without kind of the law enforcement protections that apply in a normal criminal context. And additionally to that, they go out and collect social media. They pull down social media, which is often hard to interpret. It's often anonymous. And then they release speculative reports based on that. Those have come to light in different contexts, most notably when they were surveilling journalists during 2020 in the civil rights demonstrations in that period. And interpreting things they see on social media that half the time they don't even understand and just using that to target people. Is that it? That's a large part of the ill effects of this. Certainly there's value if they can find somebody that they already know and might look at their posts, but it's very difficult to kind of divine meaning from anonymous social media in this law enforcement context. And they'll take that and then they will give it a lot of weight because, as you said, it has the, the seal of the federal government. And then it will direct state and local policing. Ted Kaczynski is one thing if they could find some information that could lead to a crazed bomber. But when you're doing it against activists, you're chilling their activism. Right. This sort of intelligence and its use by prosecutors, by police seeking warrants, absolutely has the direct effect of chilling activism and undermining broader social justice movements by painting people involved as malicious and evil. Okay, I can expect this from uh, the former President Trump, but this is the uh, Biden administration. They're supposed to be better than that. Is this a government disease, and, and what's the cure? Yeah, I think it is. This is the inevitable result of a really broad um, intelligence-sharing framework that has been designed without meaningful safeguards and with a really broad mandate that is easy to subject to abuse. There are, I think, solutions for it. The DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis needs to stop relying on American social media, which has shown that it can't do responsibly. It needs to get out of interviewing people in carceral environments. It needs to be subject to much stronger oversight. And we would say the same thing for the fusion centers. There's really been no accounting of these very murky, opaque information sharing centers. And we're recommending an inspector general come in and do a a top to bottom assessment and help the public understand what's going on there to see if there's actually even any security value. Spencer Reynolds is an attorney with the Brennan Center for Justice National Security Program. Construction crews have already begun clearing wide swaths of the overgrown urban forest in an unincorporated area of DeKalb County ahead of the construction of the 85-acre police training center. As approved by the Atlanta City Council in September 2021, the land is being leased to the private Atlanta Police Foundation for $10 a year. And in more news. 
WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is dangerously close to extradition to the United States to face a potential 175 years in jail on espionage charges, says the imprisoned journalist's family. Assange was arrested in 2019 and has been in London's infamous Belmarsh Prison, facing extradition to the U.S. ever since. The United States has charged Assange with violating the Espionage Act, the same law former President Donald Trump is being charged under for improper possession of classified documents. Assange was forced to flee prosecution by several countries before ending up in Ecuador's U.K. embassy for seven years, where he was arrested. Anti-war activist and Assange supporter Ron Ridenauer spoke with the news from his home in Denmark. The so-called United Kingdom, which is neither a kingdom any longer nor united, they're the worst or among the two, three worst colonialist slavers. They don't care about the law. They don't even have a constitution. They have the official Secrets Act, and they make everything a secret. Julian Assange is, is to be murdered, and it doesn't matter... This is a good example of what I'm saying. The 4th of June, people who are interested in Julian Assange's case, there's a lot going on in Spain. El País, of the five newspapers that did an editorial a few months ago saying he should be freed after 14 years of demeaning him, El País is the best of the five. They're following this national court case against UC Global and the owner, David Morales. The Spanish police and, of course, the Spanish Secret Service, the counterpart, the CIA, are doing everything they can to prevent this judge, who is a decent man. His name is Santiago Pedras. He's prohibited Morales from leaving the country, taking their passport away from him. And the police, with the CIA, of course, have hidden from this court case, this has been going on for three and a half years, all kinds of documentation that shows that the CIA was the recipient of UC Global's spying, illegal spying, spying everywhere in the embassy, Ecuador's embassy in London. And the headline of the El País article in English is Police Omitted Folder Called CIA from the Computer of Spaniard Who Allegedly Spied on Julian Assange. This in of itself, under any court of law, would cause a law-abiding judge, if there were one in England, to dismiss the extradition order or request from the United States and free Julian Assange. But when that judge, Pedras, asks for assistance or any kind of information from England or the CIA, they simply ignore him. And he has said, this information we would like to have codified, we would like you to respond, and we want to interview the people, among them English citizens and U.S. citizens, who were spied upon in the Ecuador embassy, and they refuse. I don't know how this can happen, but the so-called high court in London has refused to allow the Spanish judge to interview people who were spied upon. Fuck their so-called laws, they're never going to free this man. The only way this man is going to be freed is if people like yourself and anybody else who's listening demonstrate in front of Langley every day. You can start with 100 people, and it soon should be 1,000, and for a hopefully a million. And the media is doing nothing to really support him. That's where we're at. I mean, he's going to get extradited. No way of stopping it now. They're going to try to have the European court stop it, but they are powerless, just like the United Nations is powerless. They all cater to the Wall Street capitalists, especially the war industry capitalists, Pentagon and the CIA. The president of the United States has very little and almost no power anyway. And this asshole, who is the president now, is totally dement. I don't mean to knock people or demand. We shouldn't have a demand person being a president of the United States. But in reality, it doesn't matter whether he's sick or a homosexual or a transvestite or whatever. You know, what matters is money. There was some hope because there's a lot of demonstrations going on, especially in Australia. But the Social Democrat Prime Minister of Australia 
has just signed an agreement with Yankees to invade China. They just bought nuclear submarines that can take nuclear weapons. The Secretary of State is in China now. I suppose that has to do with the fact that China is is a very better intelligent capitalist, uh, you know, government. Their economy is declining and they're desperate for friends with the U.S. That's exactly the opposite. <laughs> you know, yeah. economists that I read show that this trick, whatever this means, this new money that China is doing. I mean, China has a lot of friends in Africa and Latin America and Asia. China is very strong. And when the New York Times, that has always supported every war, they are whores for war, as is the Washington Post, which is basically the CIA newspaper number one. Jeff Bezos has sold the technology so that the CIA and cannot be downloaded or whatever it's called. They're trying to prevent another Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. You read it the other way around. What it means if you come into, as a reporter or any other type of person, and you're not an American citizen, and you effectively damage America, he unleashed a lot of stuff that might not have been in and of itself earth-shaking, but showed that the reality is it's a pretty cynical power political game. Maybe every country plays it. Let's say the U.S. is just no different from any other country. When they use the Espionage Act, they want to use it against everybody. And that's what they're accomplishing with Julian Assange. And the mass media gives a shit less because they're not real journalists anyway. They are whores for capital. Anti-war activist and Assange supporter, Ron Ridenauer. On Wednesday, Assange got the support of Amnesty International. The rights group's secretary general, Agnes Kalmard, said in a statement, allowing Julian Assange to be extradited to the U.S. would put him at great risk and sends a chilling message to journalists the world over. Kalmard added, Diplomatic assurances provided by the U.S. that Assange will not be kept in solitary confinement cannot be taken on face value given previous history. And in related news, whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, famous for revealing the Pentagon Papers, the secret history of the Vietnam War, died a week ago Friday. In an interview with this reporter in 2019, Ellsberg praised WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and discussed the importance of protecting whistleblowers. The Espionage Act is a law that was passed in 1917. It was intended to prohibit interference with military operations or recruitment to prevent insubordination in the military and to prevent the support of United States enemies during wartime. Among those charged with offenses under the act are German-American Socialist Congressman and newspaper editor Victor L. Berger, labor leader and five-time Socialist Party of America candidate Eugene V. Debs, anarchist Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, former Watchtower Bible and Tract Society President Joseph Franklin Rutherford, and Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were eventually executed under another law, the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, which made passing nuclear secrets to a foreign government punishable by death. The law was amended in 1954 to eliminate the death penalty. The first journalism source charged under the law was Daniel Ellsberg. Charges against him were eventually dropped when it was revealed that the Nixon administration had been spying on him. He spoke, Ellsberg spoke moments ago with WBAI. This is an attack directly on the First Amendment and on journalism in America, and it will have precedence for the whole world. I've expected this uh, Whenever Julian Assange got extradited to this country, if he did, and with the appeals going on on that, I expected that to be a year or even two from now, perhaps after he'd gone to Sweden. But instead, it's coming right now. The reason I didn't expect this attack on uh, use uh, by using the Espionage Act so soon was that that will definitely complicate the decision and the appeals of extraditing him for from Britain because the extradition treaty there has a has a clause that they're not to extradite anyone for political cause, a political offense. And this is very clearly what this is. Well, we'll see whether the UK uh, is concerned about that or not. And then there'll be a question of Sweden's claim. And again, they're not supposed to uh, extradite for a um, uh, political offense. So this complicates the question of extradition. But if and when he is extradited to the United States to face these counts, 
he will be the first person, and he's not an American citizen, of course, to start with, but he will be the first journalist uh, ever to be indicted in the United States for giving information to the American public. I was the first source a former official to be tried under the Espionage Act. I faced 12 counts, including one of conspiracy, uh, facing 115 years. He's facing 17 counts under the Espionage Act and one for conspiracy. So he's facing 175 years. Frankly, as a former defendant, that doesn't make much difference. It's a life sentence, whichever you're looking at, even with good behavior. So they're trying to put a journalist in prison for releasing information to the American public, uh, which is could not be a more direct violation of the First Amendment, the freedom of the press. It makes a mockery of the First Amendment, which is the absolute foundation stone of this republic, of this democracy over here. And it deserves uh, the highest priority attention from everyone in the press, but actually from people concerned with civil liberties in this country at all. It certainly concerns me. I'm 88 years old. I didn't expect really to be spending all my time on this case or a case like this, uh, but uh, I'll have to because, uh, as I say, my experience of being the first person prosecuted under this uh, has given me an understanding of this particular law 18 U.S.C. 793 paragraphs D and E, which I happen to know as a non-lawyer because I was the first defendant under it. And it's been used now by, um, uh, let's see how many, about a dozen, a dozen people since me, uh, six of them under, oh, nine of them, nine of them under President Obama, more than three previous presidents combined. But Obama studied the uh, DOJ, studied the Assange case, wanted to uh, use him as a precedent, really, I think, for getting it journalists, and yet decided not to do it over a matter since 2010. Now, that's nine years ago, because it was so blatant a violation of the First Amendment. And they weren't sure that that wouldn't be noticed uh, by appeals uh, court and by the Supreme Court. So they didn't. They were afraid that it would chill journalism, which it obviously is intended to do and will do, even the prosecution, uh, whether he's convicted or not. Uh, As of this hour and today, uh, every journalist in America now knows that for the first time, they are vulnerable to criminal prosecution for doing their job. The law was intended to be used against spies. Uh, and has been used in exclusively for that reason until my case, 1971, when I was indicted not as a spy. In fact, the prosecution uh, made a motion, which was accepted, not to use the word espionage in the courtroom because it would prejudice the case against him. It was so obvious that what I was doing in revealing thousands of pages, 7,000 pages of top secret documents to the public was not done with the intention of helping a foreign power in a war or not in a war, but intention of helping our democracy uh, discover lies by the government over a 23-year period at that point. So they didn't even want to, uh, they didn't want the jury to think, well, this guy's obviously not a spy. They didn't charge me with that. It was the first non-espionage case. This too is a non-espionage case, but it's against a journalist, not a source. And uh, the, even Nixon did not, in the end, uh, try to prosecute the New York Times. The New York Times itself acknowledges, today, I just saw it, that what Julian Assange did was essentially what the New York Times does all the time. In other words, for all the efforts of this Justice Department, a guy named John Damer, apparently, to distinguish Julian Assange from journalists and publishers, And what he did from what, quote, responsible journalists do, uh, they're charging with what journalists do all the time, in part for uh, requesting and soliciting classified information. Well, I couldn't count the number of times I have been solicited for classified information 
over the years and and a thousand other people have by the Times, the Post, the AP, whoever else. That's what journalists do. And uh, they've never been prosecuted for it before because you can't have a free press that is subject to criminal charges for that. You ask what the what the uh, intent of the law was. It was by all the legislative history, that is the discussion in Congress when it was passed in 1917, uh, just after war had been declared against. Uh, it was to get German spies then, and uh, any kind of spies, even uh, friendly uh, spies from friendly countries like Israel. Jonathan Pollard is in prison still for having information to Israel. And... Um, to use that against a source of information to the American public, and I have to keep saying over and over, I was the first, is to define the American public pretty much as the enemy, which is the way uh, the executive branch of which I was part for a long time sees the public, but they don't, they don't come right out in court and say it. And so Trump is breaking that tradition of non-violating the First Amendment on that condition. That's today. It's a historic day and a very ominous one. He is doing what Nixon actually contemplated doing, uh, going directly after publishers and journalists and not just their sources. Um, Nixon actually was considering, uh, in fact, had a grand jury, let me just say, not considering. There was a grand jury that was going after uh, Neil uh Neil Sheehan and Hedrick Smith, who helped publish the Pentagon Papers, both of the New York Times. And actually, their lawyer expected them to be indicted. But the conditions under which my prosecution was dismissed, finally, uh, in May of 73, of illegally overhearing me on, uh, on warrantless wiretaps and taking attempts to kill me uh, on May 3rd, 1972, and burglarizing my psychiatrist's office and so forth. All of those things prejudiced the, con- the, the uh, uh, prosecution uh, of the people who had published what I gave them, that that grand jury was dropped. As far as I know, that's the first and last time that uh, they got that close to prosecuting a journalist until now. Obama, as I just said, considered it for years uh, since 2010 and decided not to do it, that they would lose in any way, would chill journalism, which their Department of Justice purported not to want to do. They were already chilling journalism by prosecuting sources, frankly, but uh, this one they were going to lose because it's so clearly a violation, a misuse of the Espionage Act as is this case, an even more blatant, unconstitutional misuse of the Espionage Act. Uh, You you asked what the difference was between Trump and and Nixon. Uh, Nixon was violating, was in uh, face impeachment for uh, violating the Constitution and a number of criminal acts against me as a source. Uh, Trump is even more blatant about violating the Constitution than Richard Nixon. Is that a surprise? I don't suppose so. But uh, it's a terrible precedent, and he will not be the last to do this if he gets away with it. This case should be uh, it should be demanded that on constitutional grounds, this case should be dropped. Uh, and really, the attorney general uh, should be subject to impeachment for bringing this case at all. Yes, it should be another count in impeachment proceedings if if uh, those uh, go against. Trump. Whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, famous for revealing the Pentagon Papers, speaking with Paul DiRienzo in May of 2019 on the prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. And that's the news for the week of June 24, 2023. The news is available at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>